considered an officer of the United States uh, for purposes of the 14th Amendment. It's not clear. Big questions about the charges against Donald Trump will likely end up in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, just not quite yet. For Saturday, December 23rd, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Ahead, we'll hear from a long-shot presidential candidate in Russia challenging Vladimir Putin. And Beyonce versus Taylor. Just why do we frame it that way? My fear is that we're not going to see the real development of women artists, and we're going to still have these competitive tropes. Also ahead of the 50th anniversary of The Exorcist, a look at how demonic possession has been portrayed in film. Before that film came out, there were really only about two cases of exorcism in United States history. Now there are exorcisms going on pretty much every week. All that and more after these news headlines. Live from NPR News, I'm Giles Snyder. Israel's military has ordered Palestinians to evacuate another swath of territory in the central Gaza Strip. The military says in a social media post that it's attacking Hamas and that residents should evacuate to shelters for their own safety. NPR's Daniel Lester reports from Tel Aviv. The latest Israeli evacuation order Friday covers about 15 percent of the central Gaza Strip. The United Nations says about 61,000 Palestinians have been sheltering in that area. Now they're being ordered to flee further south where shelters are overcrowded. NPR producer Anas Baba met a 53-year-old resident of the area under evacuation order, Sabri Abdul Rahim. He said, we have gone through what no other people in the world have gone through. The Gaza Health Ministry says in the past day, another 200 Palestinians have been killed in the Israeli bombardment. The Israeli military announced five more soldiers were killed in combat in Gaza. Israeli demonstrators gathered in Tel Aviv, calling for the release of hostages held in Gaza. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. President Biden is declining to reveal details about his conversation with Israel's prime minister today, saying it was a private conversation. He did say, however, that he did not ask for a ceasefire. Biden spoke with reporters as he was leaving the White House for Camp David, where he plans to spend the Christmas holiday. Today's been a day of mourning in the Czech Republic. Government officials and speakers of both houses of parliament attended a mass at the country's biggest cathedral to remember the 14 people who were killed in Thursday's shooting at a university in Prague. More than two dozen people were wounded before the gunman killed himself. Bells rang out across the country today and people observed a minute of silence. As the end of the year approaches, it's just weeks until the Republican nominating contests officially kick off the Iowa caucuses. NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben reports on where things stand in the state. Donald Trump has the support of around 50 percent of likely Iowa caucus goers, according to the 538 polling average. His two chief rivals, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former Ambassador Nikki Haley, are both at least 30 points behind. DeSantis has campaigned hard in Iowa. He has visited all 99 counties and received the endorsement of Republican Governor Kim Reynolds, as well as prominent evangelical leader Bob Vanderplatz. But his poll numbers have stalled. Nikki Haley has gained ground recently. She is the preferred candidate of many voters who dislike Trump. But it's not clear how much more support she can pick up. CNN will host a GOP debate in Iowa on January 10th, and Haley and DeSantis have been pressuring Trump to attend what would be his first debate of the cycle. Danielle Kurtzleben, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Josie Guarino. A Massachusetts State Police trooper is recovering from minor injuries after his cruiser was struck by a suspected drunken driver. The trooper reported his cruiser was pushed into him after a driver rammed into it while the trooper was conducting a vehicle stop. State police officials say it happened on Route 24 in West Bridgewater Saturday just after midnight. Two other people also suffered minor injuries. The unidentified driver was charged with operating a motor vehicle while under the influence of liquor. Nonprofits are teaming up to make the holiday festive for some of the nearly 8,000 homeless families in Massachusetts. WBUR's M- Gabriella Emanuel reports the effort ranges from outings to gifts. Pictures with Santa, a trip to see the Nutcracker on stage, winter coats, gift cards, all of the above will be provided to eight homeless families staying at the Bethel AME Church in Jamaica Plain this weekend, thanks to a number of charities working together. But Pastor Gloria White-Hammond says one of the main gifts her congregation is offering is a warm, safe place for these families to stay. Jesus couldn't find a place to be born, right? But someone stepped up and there was a room that came up, and so we've got a whole house that's available to do likewise. The church has converted an old rectory into a temporary shelter for those who can't get into the state system. Other homeless families will also see the Nutcracker and receive gift cards. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. An earthquake struck New Hampshire late Friday night. The United States Geological Survey reports a magnitude 2.7 earthquake was recorded recorded in the Concord, New Hampshire area at around 11 p.m. Officials say the quake spanned a minimum distance of nearly 46 miles and 547 people reported feeling tremors. There have been no injuries reported. Well, clouds roll in for tonight, low around 34. Tomorrow, gray skies with a high in the upper 40s. Monday, Christmas Day, we start off cloudy, then turning sunny by the afternoon. Highs near 50 on Christmas Day. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. This is a persecution. Felony violations for national security laws. We need one more indictment. Criminal conspiracy. To close out this election. He actually just stormed out of the courtroom. Innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. It's time for Trump's trials. That's where we talk through the latest developments in the legal trials of former President Donald Trump, all playing out as he runs for president again. And a lot happened this week. Yesterday, the Supreme Court denied special counsel Jack Smith's request for the justices to fast track a critical decision, whether or not Trump is immune from prosecution over alleged crimes committed while in office. Instead, that issue will work its way through the appeals court and likely still end up at the Supreme Court. Earlier in the week, we had another major legal update that will also likely end up before the Supreme Court. Colorado's top court disqualified Trump from the state's presidential ballot, saying he engaged in insurrection and that bars him from holding office because of the U.S. Constitution's 14th Amendment. So we don't know when it will happen or what it will look like, but it is increasingly clear the Supreme Court will play a major role in all these cases and the presidential election next year. 
a lot to talk about, and I'm joined now by NPR Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson to get into it. Carrie, glad to have you back. No, happy to be here. What is your reaction to this immunity decision or or maybe non-decision by the court? You know, it's hard to say right now what to make of it. The court is less than transparent. I'll just put it that way. They didn't give a reason for uh, denying Jack Smith's petition to hear this quickly. They didn't tell us what the vote was. They didn't tell us whether there were any denials by any of the justices. And we also don't know whether Clarence Thomas has recused himself, as some Democrats on Capitol Hill had asked him to do. So I'm going to wait till we have a little more information to give a real take. This feels, uh, to me, this feels like what the Supreme Court is for, right? Unprecedented legal case involving an election, involving a president of the United States, involving key questions. How is the legal community responding to the court, at this moment at least, sidestepping the case? You know, uh, Democrats, progressives in the legal community are adopting mostly a wait and see approach here, in part because they think this matter will get up to the Supreme Court and that may happen relatively quickly. That's because the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals has already scheduled oral argument on this immunity issue for January 9th. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's every reason to expect a quick decision from the D.C. Circuit. But lawyers are closely watching what happens from there. Will Donald Trump ask for the full appeals court uh, to hear the this? Will the Supreme Court be more willing to hear this immunity dispute quickly then? Of course, the trial date in Washington, D.C. really hangs in the balance here, as does a lot of Donald Trump's calendar for 2024. All right. So that trial was supposed to get started on March 4th. You just said the appeals court is going to hear this on January 9th. But Trump's legal team has been pretty clear here that there is a running out the clock strategy. And that's because if he is the Republican nominee, if he's on the ballot, if he's elected president again, he would have the power to stop these federal cases against him. So what does this extra step mean, or do we just not know at this time when it comes to how quickly that trial could start? We don't know. What we do know is for now, everything is on hold. And that makes a big difference because the jury selection in this case is going to take potentially a long time, maybe a month. And Judge Tanya Chutkin had asked a bunch of prospective jurors to show up at the courthouse in D.C. in early February. Uh, But now everything's on hold. So any kind of jury selection process is going to have to wait until we have more clarity from the higher courts. Yeah. I mean, we've talked a lot about Chief Justice John Roberts' larger mission to rehabilitate the reputation of the court and how in recent years that's gotten harder and harder and harder. Uh, What does this particular decision at this moment say to you about that goal here? Because we are talking about a big collision of huge, weighty political issues that seem to be on their way to the court huge, a huge collision, like a multi-car crash, if we can put it that way. And one clue that we have is that no one uh, recorded a dissent today from this decision not to hear the case now in a quick manner. And so it may be that the justices are largely in alignment about what to do next procedurally. If, if some justice really had a huge concern about delay and, and whether this meant Donald Trump could run out the clock, then uh, they might have written something, insisted it uh, come out today. But all we have is that one sentence from the court. And again, with that January hearing, is it possible that this could be just a matter of a, week, a few weeks delay at this point in time? Do we just not know? 
We don't know. It's possible. But uh, the rules of the appellate court give Trump the option of seeking a review from the entire D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. And he has about 45 days to do that after the decision comes down. And then he has about 90 days to decide what to do next after that. If all of those um, deadlines are in play and in place now, like in a normal case, boy, that kicks us really, really far into 2024. The open question is whether the appeals court and the Supreme Court are going to make him hurry up in yeah. some way. Yeah. And let's talk about another one of those cars in that multi-car pileup of possible big Supreme Court cases for a minute. That's the Colorado Supreme Court case from earlier this week, the state Supreme Court ruling that Trump was ineligible to be on the ballot, saying he engaged in insurrection. Uh, we've talked about the fact that this is another case that seems like it's headed to the Supreme Court. We don't know what this timeline would be on that yet, right? We haven't heard anything No, what we're waiting for there is Donald Trump, who likes to delay. The ball is in his court about whether he said he wants to appeal, but he hasn't uh, submitted a petition to the high court yet. And nothing can happen until he does that. And, And can you remind us, because, you know, we're back in that Trump news cycle where something is an enormous story, then another enormous story happens and kind of wipes your brain clean of the first one. And welcome back. Can you remind us what some of the key questions that that the federal courts would be thinking about? would be with this Colorado case. Sure. So this all revolves around that uh, the 14th Amendment, a particular section of the amendment that Congress passed after the Civil War. And it basically uh, allows for disqualification of people who previously took an oath of office and then engaged in insurrection. So there are a lot of questions when it comes to Donald Trump. Did he, in fact, engage in an insurrection? He hasn't been convicted of that crime. Is this uh, ruling um, by the lower court enough to disqualify him? from the primary ballot in Colorado? Is the president considered an officer of the United States uh, for purposes of the 14th Amendment and in this particular section of the law? It's not clear. The president takes a slightly different oath than other people do. And finally, uh, whether Donald Trump had enough due process in Colorado for uh, that state to take the really bold step of disqualifying him. Everything there is on pause until January 4th. And so for now, it seems he will be on the primary ballot. But, you know, this is an issue across many states, and the high court's going to have to weigh in here. Carrie Johnson, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. The college football playoff has always been controversial, with more than four teams making a compelling case for inclusion in it just about every year. This year, the selection committee who decides the final four teams to compete for the national championship took that controversy to new heights when it excluded Florida State from the bracket. The Seminoles had gone undefeated and won their conference, the Atlantic Coast Conference, among other compelling arguments to be in the mix. The controversy happened at a moment where college football is being realigned, with big conferences expanding and disappearing as schools compete for major money. It exacerbated other tensions already in the works and now could lead to a football divorce. Florida State has sued the ACC. The ACC has sued Florida State. Lynn Hatter is news director at member station WFSU in Tallahassee and joins us now. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me. I mean, Florida State to me is synonymous with the ACC. It's been in the ACC for 30 years. Why does FSU want to leave now? Well, it comes down to what a lot of college sports come down to nowadays, right, which is money. Mm -hmm. FSU has long argued it's not being paid what it's worth to the conference. And with each passing year, the revenue gap between it and its competitors and other conferences gets larger and larger. Other conferences like the Southeastern Conference are just generating more money for their schools. 
Then there are concerns that the conference is weak in football, which has come up in FSU's title snub and also its lawsuit. Yeah. I mean, there are so many contracts involved in, in college sports at this point, particularly big ones like football. How easy would it be for any type of split to occur? It's going to be hard. Right. There are a series of complicated contracts here that are going to need a lot of unwinding. First is the financial penalty FSU would have to pay the ACC to leave. Last year, that figure was reportedly around $130 million. So that's already a lot. Then comes the mess that constitutes the media rights. During a meeting of FSU's Board of Trustees yesterday, we learned that the total cost of leaving would be more than half a billion dollars. In fact, this is what the university president, Richard McCullough, had to say about it. That means we're essentially bound by this, uh, this onerous penalty, which was created completely superfluously by the ACC. So the university is now suing the ACC and accusing it of violating antitrust laws and arguing that that $570 million hit is excessive. What happens next? No idea. Uh, the ACC has already signaled they're going to fight this, and it's anyone's guess how long this is going to take. So if FSU wins, the ACC and maybe some of its other member schools could appeal the decision because FSU's departure also weakens them. The whole reason the ACC schools effectively signed over their media rights way back when was to prevent a single school from jumping ship like FSU was trying to do now. Mm -hmm. So it's not a stretch to say that this is a mess and it's going to take a lot of legal work to see if and even how it's possible to unwind it. That's Lynn Hatter, the news director at member station WFSU. Thanks so much. You're welcome. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for joining us on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino. It's 518 coming up at 6 on WBUR. We'll have stories of people who made an impact through a single phone call. Stay with us on the radio and the WBUR app. And if you want to stay updated on upcoming WBUR events at City Space and throughout Greater Boston and get first crack at tickets, sign up for the WBUR Events Newsletter. Just go to WBUR.org newsletters. WBUR supporters include Zoo New England. Immerse yourself in a winter wonderland at Zoo Lights, Stone Zoo's sparkling annual holiday tradition. Advanced tickets required at StoneZoo.org and the Regent Theater in Arlington, presenting a wide variety of music and dance concerts, independent film, and multicultural events. Tickets and info at regenttheater.com. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. 
President Biden spoke with Israel's prime minister today. The White House says the two discussed the situation in Gaza as international pressure grows over civilian casualties and the humanitarian crisis. The president declined to give details about the conversation when he left the White House for Camp David, where he's spending the Christmas holiday. A Michigan State basketball player is recovering from a gunshot wound. The university says Jeremy Fears, a freshman point guard, underwent surgery today after he was shot in the leg sometime last Last night near his hometown in Illinois. And the last Saturday before Christmas is typically one of the busiest shopping days of the year. The National Retail Federation says it expects some 142 million shoppers to visit brick and mortar stores today. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From Made in Cookware, partnering with chefs like Tom Colicchio to bring professional-grade cookware to restaurants and home kitchens. Their cookware can be found at MadeInCookware.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. I think it is safe to say that 2023 was the year of Beyonce. It's because of you and your support that I'm doing exactly what I dreamed of doing my whole life, and I thank you. Thank you for helping make my dreams come true. And Taylor Swift. About to go on a little adventure together, and that adventure is going to span 17 years of music. How does that sound? My co-host Juana Summers took a look at the superstar's year and asked the big question: Why, when you have two accomplished artists like this, do people feel the need to compare them and make them compete? These two women dominated the summer. You had Beyonce's Renaissance. And you had Taylor Swift's Eras Tour. Online, it seemed like everyone was talking about these tours, and they were certainly being discussed in the media. Calling all Swifties. <laughs> Your wildest dreams are coming true. Yeah, if you, yeah. Well, it's time for a summer renaissance here in the U.S. Beyonce is Despite back. the heat and the chance for rain, Beyonce fans are piling into MetLife Stadium. For Tonight, Taylor Swift is in her Levi's era. The Silicon Valley hasn't seen an event like this in years. Are you ready for it? They are ready, and local economies can thank Swifties and the Beehive for a summer cash boost. The summer frenzy of Beyonce and Taylor Swift was a major success. Both released film versions of their tours and theaters, which allowed people a front row seat to experience their artistry. And the films increased the incredible amount of money the two made. Beyonce and Taylor Swift are economic powerhouses. The artists generated more than $10 billion for the U.S. this year. And beyond money, in 2023, Beyonce broke the record for most Grammy wins, and Taylor Swift was named Time Magazine's Person of the Year. They both triumphed this year. And yet, in the midst of their success, the question of who is better has come up again and again. 
The origin of Beyonce and Taylor Swift being pitted against one another goes back to 2009 at the Video Music Awards. That year, Taylor Swift won the award for Best Female Video, and while she was in the middle of her acceptance speech, Kanye West came up on stage, and, well, this happened. I I'm really happy for you. I'm gonna let you finish. But Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. One of the best videos of all time. Booze from the crowd, a stunned look from Beyonce, a pop culture scandal playing out in real time. Later that night, when Beyonce won the award for best video of the year, she brought Taylor Swift up on stage so she could finish her speech. So I'd like for Taylor to come out and have her moment. Despite that, the controversy at the 2009 VMAs cemented years to come of comparing these two artists. But this is not a new phenomenon, pitting women against each other in the music industry. Nicki Minaj versus Little Kim, Britney Spears versus Christina Aguilera, Cher versus Celine Dion. The list of comparisons goes on. My fear is that we're not going to see the real development of women artists, and we're going to still have these competitive tropes. Conversations about comparing Beyonce and Taylor Swift were mainly playing out among fans online, on podcasts, and on platforms like TikTok. Let's take a listen to some of what was being discussed. Who's more famous, Beyonce or Taylor Swift? Taylor Swift. Beyonce, she got more money than Taylor. <laughs> Taylor Swift. Why do you think so? Eras tour. I don't want to put, I like, I like, I'm both of their biggest fans, so I don't want to put them against each other, but I have to say Taylor. You're doing a disservice to Beyonce to compare her to Taylor Swift, because Taylor is in another galaxy. I can't tell me Beyonce has the same amount of hits, no features, as Taylor. No, she does. Take away the features. Who's the bigger artist, Taylor Swift or Beyonce? Beyonce! Why? Because Beyonce, like, what else? Like, right. no hate to T-Swizzle, but <laughs> they swizzle got it. Who do you think is a bigger artist, Taylor Swift or Beyonce? They're both equally very talented women. <laughs> that wasn't the question. I need for y'all to stop comparing these two. I'm just annoyed that y'all do this anytime they're in the same vicinity. Yes, they're both on tour. Yes, they're making millions. Why do y'all gotta compare? All right, it is clear that Swifties and members of the Beehive have very strong opinions about these artists. But as we just heard, there are people questioning why both women can't coexist as individual musicians. To unpack that question, I spoke to Tammy Kernodal, a professor of music at Miami University in Ohio. There seems to be this impulse. You take these two women who are both having these incredible years, there's this collective impulse that we have to compare the two of them. Why do you think that is? You know, that's such an interesting question, particularly given the fact that when you look at the rankings of the top tours from 2023. No one is talking about Bruce Springsteen competing with Ed Sheeran mm -hmm. or any of these male artists who have been identified, you know, in these top tours. Why is it that women are always pitted against each other? And I think it has a lot to do with the way in which, you know, we define artistry, we define uh, acceptable space in certain social spheres, but also in reference to music, whether women can be within the narrative. And oftentimes what has happened 
particularly in the history of popular music in America, is that there's only been space for one woman and she has to be an exceptional woman. And the way in which that mm -hmm. exceptionalism is measured or marked continually changes according to genre of music, sometimes race, sometimes generation, you know, it, it just varies. But hard and fast, there's only been space for one woman. And I mean, this is clearly a phenomenon in our culture that did not start with Beyonce and Taylor. It did not start in 2023. It dates back decades, centuries even. Can you take us through some of the history of how we have ended up pitting women against each other in the music industry? One of the earliest examples of this I can draw on comes from jazz. And in particular, when you see how pianist Mary Lou Williams was often pitted against pianist Hazel Scott. I saw you there, and the sun was during the 1930s and 40s. Both very consummate, proficient, genre-bending, extraordinary musicians, but both operating within the jazz paradigm as pianists. And while that's acceptable, you know, there's still this contested space about them. And so there are literal reviews of records and there's literal commentary by jazz journalists where they say, you know, Hazel Scott needs to listen to this Mary Lou Williams record to know what real jazz is. So this question of competition is one about who gets to define what is authentic in sound and musicianship in a genre, right? So there's this constant pitting uh, female artists against each other. And sometimes it's wrapped up solely in sound and talent and musicianship. And other times it's just based in petty observations that before the advent of social media were just simple conversations that we as fans might have had amongst ourselves, but now they get amplified into bigger, you know, narratives. We're having a conversation about arguably two of the biggest and most iconic female artists of our day, but I want to bring the conversation, if I can, back to the men again for the moment. And the point you made earlier is that this kind of comparison does not happen between male artists of the same caliber. Why do you think that is? Because everything about our public sphere has been defined in masculinity. Our language, our way of thinking politically, economically, socially, and also culturally. We, we have yet to fully untap really what are the roles of women as it relates to cultural expression. And so we still in some ways have looked to male voices as the progenitors, as the definers, as the tastemakers, as it relates to so much of our social culture. And so they can exist in a space where it can be more than one of them. And what they can also exist in is a state of mediocrity. Women cannot. So we always have to be exceptional, no matter what, in order to rise to the top. 
Another thing that strikes me when we talk about this so-called rivalry between Beyonce and Taylor Swift is the fact that it has always seemed to be non-existent on their part and a creation of people external to them. I mean, these are two women who have over the years outwardly supported one another. I mean, when Taylor Swift was named Times Person of the Year for 2023, she said this, and I'm quoting her here, clearly it's very lucrative for the media and stand culture to pit two women against each other, even when those two artists in question refuse to participate in that discussion. What did you make of that? It's exactly true. It is more lucrative to stir up, you know, so-called rivalries or tensions between artists, because what it does is it calls for us to, to claim positions. It also causes for us to speak with our dollars. And so the people who benefit from this are not those two artists, so to speak, even though we do see in their case you know, the, the, the economic residuals of this, but more so it fuels an industry that's always been based in controversy in some type of way. The cultural industry thrives off of that because what it enables is their continual production and dissemination of culture without us scrutinizing what are their practices, without us scrutinizing you know, what is the exploitation and the manipulation that is taking place? So Tammy, I want to end by asking you for solutions. How do we get away from this narrative, this idea that there can only be one, that exceptional woman? What do we do? I think it's responsible journalism. I think that's kind of where it starts. It's responsible journalism. I think it also calls for people like me who write and teach and research in these areas to continue to illuminate what are these historical narratives. Because when we understand that women artists have been present through all of these different progressive ages of change and musical evolution, then we can understand that this has always been an inclusive conversation and, and that women did not hold a trivial place in these subcultures and these ecosystems that surround the music. We just have to keep telling the story. We have to keep uncovering historical narratives. Tammy Kernodal, professor of music at Miami University in Ohio. Thank you so much. Thank you. I love my hometown as much as Motown. I love SoCal. And you know I love Springsteen, faded blue jeans, Tennessee whiskey.
Taylor Swift and Beyonce, and this is NPR News. Russia holds its presidential election in three months. President Vladimir Putin is certain to win a fifth term, but that doesn't mean there aren't other candidates if they can manage to get on the ballot. In Moscow, NPR's Charles Maines recently met with one. Ekaterina Dunsova would seem an unlikely choice to be the next president of Russia and new chief resident of the Kremlin. This will work. The 40-year-old journalist and mother of three is the first to admit she doesn't know Moscow all that well. Just as she openly acknowledges, as we meet in the city's main park that she's seen for the first time, she'd prefer if someone else were in her shoes. The problem is, better-known pro-democracy candidates are all in exile or jail. There aren't many who can still participate in the presidential elections, but I think you should use any opportunity to have your voice heard. Tunsova's political experience is limited to just one term on the city council in her hometown of Rzhev, about 150 miles east of the capital. But Russian independent media, operating in exile, have covered her announcement intensely, seeing it as a rare wild card in an election in which it's universally assumed President Vladimir Putin will extend his near quarter century rule. Tunsova's answer. You never know. The only way to protest that one man has been in power for so long and there's no change is through elections. It's the only peaceful way to do it, and I don't endorse any other way. Parties in Russia's parliament all support Putin's leadership, even as they field pro-forma candidates against him. And then there's Dunsova, more than three decades Putin's junior, who argues Russia is on the wrong path and has been for years. Her goal, she says, is to give Russia back its future. Just yesterday, I was talking with a 22-year-old, and he said, I was born under Putin, grew up under Putin, and now we have elections, and once again it'll be more Putin. It tells them that nothing is possible, and there's no point in politics at all. Tunsova's platform begins with a call to free all political prisoners and roll back a host of repressive government measures. She also says she endorses a path to peace. That's about as close as she comes to criticizing the war in Ukraine without violating those same Russian laws she'd one day like to repeal. Because Tunsova is, in effect, the lone anti-war candidate in a country where that position can earn you years in jail. The number of people who don't just think but are willing to speak out about wanting peace aren't that many. But they exist, and there are others who may be willing to listen. Reaching them may be her biggest problem, as Dunsova seeks to formally get on the ballot. Earlier today, Russia's Central Elections Board denied her initial bid, casting doubt on signatures she'd gathered in support of her candidacy. She's appealing that ruling to the Supreme Court. Dunsova acknowledges Putin, backed by a state media machine, has a strong base of support, But she sees an opening for her own message of peace. Many people are tired of what's happening, of having to wait for their loved ones to return. Meanwhile, it seems every week or two we learn another soldier has died. Meanwhile, Dunsova says the question she's asked most is if she's a Kremlin ploy. Her candidacy, a bid to generate interest and legitimize the vote. She insists she's no one's pawn. Fine, call her naive, says Dunsova, but she thinks her candidacy can be a response to those who say, when it comes to politics and Putin's autocratic Russia, why bother? In fact, Dunsova's decision to run is a high-stakes bet that somehow some good can come out of saying, why not? 
Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. This is NPR News. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Olin College of Engineering, ranked number two for best classroom experience and top internship placements by the Princeton Review. Olin.edu. Good afternoon, I'm Josie Guarino. WBUR occasionally offers you the opportunity to win prizes in conjunction with our fundraising efforts. A pledge is appreciated but is not required to win a prize. Employees of WBUR and Associated Sweepstakes entities are not eligible for any drawings or contests. For complete rules, go to WBUR.org. Coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR, stories of people who made an impact through a single phone call. Stay with us on the WBUR app. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. Israel's military says it has rounded up hundreds of alleged militants in Gaza over the past week. And in a statement, the military says 200 have been sent to Israel for further interrogation. Today's statement follows earlier Palestinian reports of large-scale roundups of teenage boys and men in northern Gaza. A founding member of the group once known as the Dixie Chicks has died. According to a statement from the Texas Public Safety Department, Laura Lynch died in a car crash in West Texas. She was 65. And British police have arrested a suspect in the alleged theft of a piece of artwork by the elusive street artist Banksy. The man is suspected of stealing a stop sign in South London shortly after it was unveiled. The sign shows three drones flying across it. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. From Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. Next, a story from Bella Herrera. Herrera recently took part in Colorado's Youth Empowerment Broadcasting Organization, or YABO. YABO worked with Colorado Public Radio to produce and record a live storytelling event for students, then collected those recordings for the podcast My Story So Far. Bella's story is about a memorable holiday meal and how sometimes you have to love people in your life just for trying their best. <laughs> oh my God, hi, Eric. Hi, guys. Um, <laughs> my name is Bella. Um, this is um, essentially a story of my first Christmas with my father. <sighs> okay, so I'm obviously still a kid. I am still very much so a child. Not 18 yet, but... When I was a much younger me, a child, um, we used to go to either my grandparents' house or we used to host Christmas. And this is very important. So there there were three things at Christmas every year, no doubt. I always looked forward to these three things. Enchiladas, tamales, arroz rojo. And my family was in charge of making enchiladas. So 
Um, around a week before my mom, she would plan everything out for Christmas. She would have us wrap the gifts like a month before. She knew what she was going to wear. She knew what we were going to wear. She knew what in ingredients we need for the enchiladas. Like she would literally write down a whole list, even though we, that was our recipe. We know the enchiladas. So my mom, she's very straight cut. You know, she plans everything out to the T. And it's actually very interesting because my father is not like that at all. He's the complete opposite of that, which made it very interesting to live with my father because in 2019, my parents divorced after like a long separation process. Um, and you know, when you get divorced, you have to make a schedule with the court, you know, co-parenting, it's a big deal, I guess. So my parents' schedule for the holidays was that they would rotate every year. She would get us for Christmas Eve and then my dad would get us for Christmas Day. So my dad is a very, spontaneous person. He doesn't like to plan things very well. So about, I want to say two days before Christmas Eve dinner, the most, the most important dinner in our family, he had no idea what he was going to make. No idea at all. So of course, the pressure was on. He rushed us to the stores. We went to Safeway, King Supers, Walmart. God, Walmart is hell. <laughs> y'all know, know Walmart on, during the holidays. <laughs> um, so two days before Christmas, stuff was out of stock. So we were just getting everything we could, just the scraps of what all the people left over for us. So I had no idea what my dad was going to plan, but I did have faith in him. So December 24th rolls around. We do all of our Christmas traditions, you know. We like to open gifts early at my dad's house. We never wait. And then, of course, we have to, have to, have to watch our favorite Christmas movie. Y'all ready for this? Y'all ready for this? The best Christmas movie out there is Die Hard. 100%, Die Hard number one, Die Hard number one. It's the best Christmas movie. Love Bruce Willis, he's an icon. So imagine me and my siblings in the living room, a very small living room in his two bedroom apartment. I'm sitting on the floor with my bed to the couch because I'm too cool to sit on the couch. Um, and my dad's, you know, finishing up his meal. He's, you know, finishing up sides and everything. We're just, I'm looking over, I'm waiting for him to call me over to the table because like, I'm kind of hungry, you know? Um, so when he calls us over, we all, we gather around. You know, there's a roast in the center. There's some mac and cheese, mashed potatoes, corn, some fixins here and there, you know, a, some, some zero lemonade, some iced tea that kind of stuff. And I look up at my dad waiting for him to tell us something, you know, because that's what you do. You wait for your parents out of respect. I look at him and, and he's, he's just, he looks so sad and nervous because this is his first Christmas with us. And, and he looks up at us and he looks around and he's like, I'm sorry, guys. I know that this is a sorry meal, but I tried my best. And that like honestly broke my heart just to hear my father say that. Um, and I look back on that day because I remember um, that that was kind of like, not the first, but the most memorable moment with him um, that showed that he actually cared for his kids and that he would fight for us and give us the best experiences he possibly could. Um, and it's definitely like, I don't want to bash my father's cooking, but it wasn't something I was used to. It was, there was no enchiladas, there was no rice, not even any beans. Like, come on, like you just gotta put them in the, in the slow cooker. That's all you gotta do. Um, but I, I understand, I understand, you know, it's my father. You know, he's not, he's, yeah. <laughs> um, I told him that we'd eat it anyways. We're not, we're not really picky, you know. 
Um, and that I was just, I was really happy just to be able to spend that moment with him. And that was one of the lessons that I learned is that the experiences don't change how you feel about people. They just make your feelings possibly stronger. And that's definitely what happened with me and my father. I cherish my father so much for that. Um, so I learned that spending time with your family is more important than the experience itself. So yeah, thank you. Our storyteller was Bella Herrera. After telling her story, Bella said, I hope my story helps other children of divorce and shows them it's not something to be ashamed of. Bella now studies media and production at the University of Colorado, where she's working on a podcast of her own. Her story was produced by Luis Antonio Perez, Emily Williams, and Rebecca Romberg. It was edited by Joe Erickson and taken from the podcast My Story So Far from Colorado Public Radio, part of the NPR Network. We saw a lot of demonic possession on our TVs and movie screens in 2023, from Evil Dead Rise... Mom? Mommy's with the maggots now. The Pope's Exorcist and Exorcist Believer. Wherever those girls went, they brought something back with them. But they all owe a debt to the original Exorcist, which marks its 50th anniversary next week. The Oscar-winning film was a box office sensation that terrified audiences and it spawned a fascination with demonic possession in cinema. NPR's Mark Rivers has more. Today, many of us know the story. Linda Blair as the possessed 12-year-old girl. Keep away! The soul is mine! And the young priest, played by Jason Miller, who struggles with his faith on the path to exercising the demon who's taken hold of her body. The power of Christ compels you! The power of Christ compels you! Directed by the late William Friedkin, The Exorcist became Warner Brothers' highest-grossing film at the time and was nominated for 10 Oscars, including Best Picture. It also scared the hell out of people, like these moviegoers interviewed back in 1973. It's probably the grossest thing I've ever seen. I fainted like 10 minutes after the beginning of the movie. You know, the bed was shaking, and then her voice changed. Oh my God, I've never seen anything like it. That's because there hadn't been anything quite like The Exorcist before which not only pushed the boundaries of what could be shown and said in a mainstream film, but almost single-handedly brought the idea of demonic possession into the public consciousness. What people don't think about as much is how many true stories were inspired by The Exorcist. So when that movie came out, it led to this huge demand for exorcism. Joseph Laycock is an associate professor of religious studies at Texas State University, and he co-wrote The Exorcist Effect, Religion, Horror, and Demonic Belief. He says the film came out at a time when many people thought religious faith was dying. There was a Gallup poll that asked, uh, is religion gaining influence or losing influence? That poll peaked in 1970 with the most people saying religion is losing influence. And of course, there was this famous Time magazine cover asking, is God dead? All of this added to the many reasons The Exorcist resonated with audiences. And part of why it frightened people so badly was this idea of, well, what if we get rid of all the churches? What if demons are real? Whether or not demons are real, when The Exorcist came out, real life certainly felt scarier. The nation is reacting socially, politically, to the Vietnam crisis. Like, this is a war that is on television, and there are images of horror and brutality coming in over the airwaves. Jordan Crucioli is a culture writer and podcaster. 
and then you have horror cinema that is responding to that with things that are more grisly than have ever been witnessed before. She says there was a sense of moral and political corruption in the air. Why shouldn't souls also be corrupted? And so a practice many church higher-ups were once embarrassed by soon came back into high demand. Here's Joseph Laycock again. Before that film came out, there were really only about two cases of exorcism in United States history that we have records of. Now, there are exorcisms going on pretty much every week. With real-world exorcisms more commonplace, filmmakers had a reservoir of stories to mine. Like 2005's The Exorcism of Emily Rose, which, like The Exorcist, was inspired by a real-life case. Or the Conjuring films, which follow the paranormal investigations of Ed and Lorraine Warren. What are you guys? Well, we've been called ghost hunters, paranormal researchers. Or from this year, The Pope's Exorcist, starring Russell Crowe as the chief exorcist for the Vatican. Here's Joseph Laycock again. Father Gabriel Amorth was inspired by The Exorcist. It was his favorite movie. He became a famous exorcist in, in Rome. And now he's played by Russell Crowe. A cycle of life imitating art and vice versa. Michael Petroni is one of the writers of The Pope's Exorcist, and he says the appeal of a good exorcist movie is elemental, a classic battle between good and evil. An exorcism film also has the added advantage of the victim and the villain being embodied in the same person, and that's great for any storytelling. Jordan Cruciola says there's also often a gendered aspect to these stories. The possessed are often women. You have something coming inside of the body, non-consensually, and violating it, and inhabiting and taking it over, and that person is never the same again once they have been penetrated by the evil. I'm telling you that that thing upstairs isn't my daughter. In researching some of his films, Petroni says he's come across stories and incidents that can't totally be explained. But he says you don't have to take exorcism films literally to find meaning in them. I think the message in a exorcism film is to always be wary and always be aware that evil lurks somewhere where it doesn't want to be discovered. The idea of the hero or the priest is to unearth the demon and to have the demon admit that it's there. And once you do that, then you have power over it. 50 years since the exorcist first terrified audiences, the shock of demonic possession may have worn off but the threat of it still holds power over the popular imagination. Hollywood keeps making exorcism movies, and we keep watching. Mark Rivers. <clears throat> Mark Rivers, NPR News. Back to Christmas now in the world of Santas. There are amateurs and there are rock stars, but this holiday, NPR's Bill Chapel found a local legend. Somewhere in Maryland, there's a mantle with a framed photo of a raccoon sitting on Santa's lap. <laughs> the raccoon had a muzzle on so it couldn't bite Santa. I've held it. the snakes, the raccoons, everything. Some families and their pets drive hours to see the legendary Santa Luke. He's been a fixture at Baltimore's Mondawmin Mall for nearly 40 years. To wear this uniform, I don't call it a costume, this uniform, it has a, you, you have to wear it with pride. You have to have a good heart, and you have to make people feel better after leaving you than receiving you. Over the decades, Santa Luke, a.k.a. Luke Durant, has heard Christmas wishes from thousands of children. Some march right up to him. Others need more convincing. Little Kensington White is really into Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, so naturally he asked Santa for... Snapchats. 
But Santa Luke says some requests you don't forget. Santa, could you bring my could you bring my daddy back? I said, well, I can't bring your daddy back, but I can assure you one thing. You will see your mommy or your daddy again if they've lost them. Thank you, Santa. I'll give him a little hug. Like I gotta say, no matter how old the age or whatever, you gotta make people feel better. Bill Chapel, NPR News. You can find more about Santa Luke on NPR.org and on the Sunshine Project, a new series celebrating joy and hope on the NPR app. I'd like to close the show by talking about traditions, feelings, friendships, and potatoes. Yes, potatoes. People celebrate New Year's Eve by dropping all sorts of things at midnight. In Pennsylvania alone, instead of a big shiny ball, towns drop pickles, strawberries, bologna, and giant Hershey's kisses, among other things. My friends and I always celebrate by throwing a potato out the back door. Not just any potato, a potato on which we have written out all of the things we want to leave behind from the previous year. Anxieties, frustrations, things that made us sad or mad. Around 10 o'clock or so on New Year's Eve, we plop a potato and a Sharpie on a table and start writing them all down. And then around 10 minutes or so before midnight, we open up the door and toss the potato out into the night. Goodbye, potato. Goodbye, bad feelings. This tradition began about seven years ago and actually started with my cousin Katie, who does this with a lemon. The first year I tried it myself, the house was citrus-free, so we settled for a potato. And this new tradition just so happened to establish itself at our New Year's parties just ahead of a stretch that offered a lot of content for New Year's Eve potatoes. The word pandemic will fill about a quarter of a potato circumference, we discovered as we wrote it a couple years in a row. As the potato ritual grew, we all decided to add a second potato, a sweet potato, to note all the positives from the year. Things to hold on to, sure, but still a potato to toss into the night because why not? Over the years, this has become such an important marker of our lives that when two friends got married a few years ago, we all snuck off for a mini potato ceremony. The writing of our highs and lows has become a moment of fellowship and community, a moment to celebrate each other's successes and be there for each other in recognizing those moments that did not feel so successful, because it's important to do both. I'll be off next week, so I wanted to share this tradition with you before New Year's. Give it a try. That is all things considered for this Saturday, and whether or not you toss a potato out the window or door next week, thanks so much for joining me on weekend evenings this year as I settled into this job. I've enjoyed your company, and I look forward to continuing to talk to you on Saturdays and Sundays next year.